Um, we're going to do a Q&A session. Um, it's sort of up to you. Do you want five minutes? Mm. Or Let's launch in. That's fine. Yeah, if you don't mind me guzzling a drink whilst we carry on. Is everybody fine with that? Seems mm. so. Excellent. <laughs> um, so I guess... Hands up, I guess is the best way to do it. Yeah, yeah. Ask <coughs> me some questions there. Let's go for Tom first. Yeah, well, Peter's yeah. well, right. obviously got a huge amount of notes. He's very excited. So I'm sure he'll have some very interesting questions. Um, I'm specifically interested in uh, sort of what your problem is with materialism. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, you've spoken a little bit about it, but I'm not quite mm. clear on... Why, why you don't think it's an admirable thing to say that we should only comment on what we can observe? I, I, you know, I, mean, mm-hmm. I restrict my comment to what I could observe. And repeatable experiments seem to me a reasonable way of assessing the world. Uh, I would say that experience and the extension of experience through scientific methodology is a, a great way of learning certain kinds of truths about a restricted range of reality. Um, but that it can't be the only way of knowing reality um, because the claim that it is the only way of knowing is self-contradictory, generates an infinite regress, is open to obvious counterexamples. So you do not know um, the truth of the law of non-contradiction as a necessary truth of logic by making enough you know, observations of the world and then inferring on the basis of experience that that's, that's probably the case. Yeah. Um, indeed, um, you can't get to a necessary truth just from an inference from limited experience. But anyway, in order to make an argument of that kind, you would have to rely upon a basic law of logic like the law of non-contradiction in order to do your arguing. Um, so, so although that law of non-contradiction isn't something that we can know empirically or through science it's nonetheless clearly something that we rationally believe that you can't argue against it without contradicting yourself but neither can you argue for it without begging the question it seems to be a matter of what what sam harris was saying about rational insight we just have this rational intuition that that's true and if you're if you're prepared to trust that rational intuition then you can be rational and reasonable about everything and do science. But if you dismiss it, then you, you undermine science and rationality itself. I mean, we wouldn't talk in terms of truth, we'd talk about probability. So the probability that this is... Yeah, the probability that this is yeah. true. Yeah, exactly. We don't say, well, we're true. But no, well, anyways, you... I, I feel you have to ask question, because my question is, I don't feel qualified to talk about that which I, I can't know or I can't talk about. So I don't understand why anybody else is. Does that seem, I mean, is that unreasonable? Well, well I think the, the, the reason that you should feel qualified to talk about things that you can't directly or, or indeed indirectly observe empirically is that in, even in order for us to be having this discussion, you are um, trusting the truth of certain propositions that you cannot be accessing via empirical means. Um, so were you to dismiss that, that kind of knowledge, you, you would basically be digging yourself into a sceptical hole that says that, that we, we don't know anything. But it's, it's, it's observable that there are sort of a probability that sound waves are travelling and all this sort of thing. It's all, in, in a sense, measurable. 
Yeah, and, and I accept that as well. I'm not dismissing. Yeah. I'm not dismissing that. I'm just saying there must be more, t- more to knowledge than that kind of knowledge, because that kind of knowledge is dependent upon m- more, more fundamental phys- philosophical kinds of knowledge, um, or, or to move out of logical um, arena for another example, maybe you know if. if if you agree with, I would agree with most of the new atheists that you can't go from scientific descriptions to moral claims, and yet I think it is obvious that there are various moral claims that I know to be true. Um, and indeed, the very practice of science as a sociological enterprise depends upon people doing things like honestly reporting the results of their experiments and, yeah. and so on, and, and you know, knowing that... Um, you know, it's wrong to stab your fellow bench partner in the back when you're getting whose name in which order on the on the article or whatever. Um, so I think there are there are many examples of things that we know, uh, or at least you can say that we're rational within our rational rights to believe to be true. Um, that it is obvious we don't access through purely empirical methodologies. Yeah, and I would say I don't know the roots of our morality. I think it's entirely possible our morality is contractual or whatever. You know, there's obviously various claims for where our morality could come from. Right, um, but it, it would be, the, the issue would be if you think, if, if for whatever reason you think that there are some objective truths about morality. Right, well, in, yeah, in that case, again, you're, you see that the rejection of extra scientific means of knowledge, if you do do that, gets you a fact-value divide, and you say, you end up saying all morality is subjective. You know, Hitler thought the Holocaust was a good idea. I don't like it, but that's just a difference of opinion between us. It's not like I'm right and he's wrong. But, but surely to you, he's just got the wrong God, or, or he's interpreted God in the wrong way. I mean, if, if, if I can say I think he's wrong because mm. uh, I think that, you know, we should treat each other as equals and uh, yeah. you know, good to each other in, in, a, in a sense that we're contractually obliged to do so, and therefore I can say he's wrong. But surely all you can say is that he's got the wrong God. <coughs> well, I don't, I don't know how God suddenly sort of popped up in, in this he's bit of conversation. But... Sorry, oh, right. Well, no, I'm not even bringing God into that. I think you, 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 can, you, can, you can believe in objective values without believing in God. You can know that the Holocaust was wrong without believing in God. Um, there are plenty of atheist philosophers of morality who I think do a good job of defending the objectivity of moral values is just that they don't think it has anything to do with God and I think they're wrong about that but I think their arguments for um, we should recognise the objectivity of certain moral values I think are good ones um, case in point if anyone wants to follow up the um, very uh, good atheist moral philosopher called Russ Schaefer Landau um, whose um, more accessible book is Whatever Happened to Good and Evil uh, he does a, I think a very good job of um, arguing against moral relativism, arguing for moral objectivism, and then he goes on to say, and some people think that moral objectivism implies something about there being a god, and I don't, and here's why, and there I would take issue with him, and I've published on that, but first half of the book, you know, uh, gets a thumbs up from me, so I, I don't think you need to bring, bring god into that stage, but yeah, I mean, if you're all arguments work by attaching a sort of price tag to rejecting the conclusion. And if you're prepared to swallow the price tag um, in order to reject the conclusion, then, then of course you, you, you are at liberty uh, to do so. Um, but I think it's, it's worth noticing that if you do say, 
we only get knowledge through scientific means, one of the consequences of that would seem to be to say that we don't know any objective moral truths. Um, and to me, that's too much of a price tag to swallow. Um, but I leave it to the individual to ponder the, the matter. I mean, it doesn't matter whether I like it or not, it's about whether it's right. Yes, whether it's true or not. Which I say we can't know. Yeah. Well, I think I can. So I, I think I, I know that torturing small children for fun is wrong. And I can say that I, I think it's wrong, but yeah. I don't know it's wrong. Right, that, that, that's, that's correct. So that's where the, the difference in the um, epistemologies takes you. Um, and you have to consider, is, is that a... Uh, a price tag worth paying in order to um, hold that uh, epistemology and be consistent. Um, Dom? Um, in your uh, section about the <coughs> about designed universe, you brought mm. up the uh, cosmological constants and the idea that we live uh, in the universe which is in, um, in the only condition in which it could exist for our life to exist or even be a coherent universe. Mm. Or at least one of a very few. Yes, yeah. but that's my, that's my question. Um, are you taking granted this is, or can you um, maybe say that there is, uh, this is the only uh, sweet spot, if mm. you like, that would produce a coherent survivable universe? Or are there not? Could there not be other situations which mm. we, <clears throat> for whatever reason, cannot determine? But should it be premature to um, to exclude the possibility that there are, in fact, several other situations in which a coherent mm. universe could be possible? Mm. Well, I guess I would say, as as a philosopher rather than a cosmologist here, I'm, I'm primarily uh, dependent upon reading the accessible literature from the cosmologists themselves. And I haven't read a particularly biased sample of such people. You know, I've read theist cosmologists and atheist cosmologists and agnostic cosmologists and so on. Uh, and there does seem to be a consensus within the field that there is, and Stephen Hawking says this, um, very unlikely and very special arrangement of laws, um, which is at least uh, uh, one of a very small subset of the possibilities out of the range of possibilities um, that are talked about. Um, you can, just from a logical point of view, uh, point out things, for example, like the number of dimensions um, that we have, that, that, we, that we live in a universe that has three, three dimensions to it, rather than a two-dimensional universe. If you had a two-dimensional universe, you couldn't have life in it. Um, try and imagine a two-dimensional cat. It has a mouth. It's taking in food. It's uh, digesting its food. It's pooping out. Oh, dear the cat's fallen in half um, because it's got a hole all the way uh, through it. Um, you could get into um, rather difficult, uh, sticky situations if you don't have enough dimensions. Um, so there are some um, that are sort of um, logical uh, requirements, as it were, but I, I think it's probably true to say that most of these uh, fine-tuning things are um, discovered through uh, the cosmological uh, sort of sciences. Um, uh, but it doesn't seem to me from my reading of the, of the field to be a particularly um, contentious 
point to make. All of the all of the debate and argument is over what is the best way to explain the observation of the fine tuning, rather than is there fine fine tuning. Um, and I can point you to, to some of the literature if, if you want on that, but um, from my reading, that's what I would say is, is the case. Any other questions? Uh, you're going to have loads. Uh, excellent. I saw you very assiduously <laughs> making notes. It was, uh... <laughs> One of the things was, you know, when you talk about scientism, it's only knowing stuff that you can observe with mm. five senses. And it, you know, it's actually just empiricism from that. Mm-hmm. And then you went on to criticise, you know, the whole idea: how can you validate this uh, reasoning? Um, that kind of seems to be half a century out of date, with the creation of evidentialism, mm-hmm. which is the crossroad between empiricism and you know rationalism. So it's no longer just a pure empirical you know, state. It actually does involve rational arguments and philosophy, etc. Mm-hmm. So that would get over the criticism of Dawkins there. And it just seems to be really based upon, you know, um, I'm trying to think. Uh, oh, right, one second, sorry. Um, um, it, it just seems to be based upon, you know, not informing people of the advances made in that field, you know, personal incredulity. You know, it's kind of deceiving them in the fact that we now do have evidentialism as well, which just put a greater strain on, you know, the rational mm. argument, the discussion, you know, why do we do this method, you know, Karl Popper coming along, talking about falsification. Also, when dealing with the existence of God, you know, I only really apply science to the, you know, is aspects, the actual, you know, things that exist, etc. Mm-hmm. The existence like, is that an is or an ought? You know, mm-hmm. is that a moral argument or is that an existence argument? Right, okay, some fascinating issues there. So, I think what I was criticising, when I'm criticising the new atheists for being scientistic and being very hardline empiricist, that's because the new atheists are scientistic and very hardline empiricist. But what he said there would contradict that. What, what, what who? Dawkins actually said that would contradict that. Yeah. Even if he gave himself a, take a label, he wouldn't actually be adhering to that label, he'd be adhering to this other label. Right. Uh, well, he may contradict himself. He does in various places. But when he says, when he says what? Um, when you know, when he goes on to, um, you know, explain how we use science, rationale behind that because it works. That's a rationalisation of why we use it. That's the reason for using it. Evidentialism can cover that. Empiricism on its own cannot. But empirism plus rationalisation. Right. Well, I'm not. I'm not sure that extension works myself because all all he's appealing to is is saying is is more experience. He's saying if we do things in this way, then um, further experience uh, tells us that that gets results that we want or that we like, or we get correct predictions or which we know through our empirical senses. That's the whole basis of science. You then come along and falsify that. That is the theory. You know, a theory is a set of statements or claims about how things work, etc. Mm. You can come along mm. and falsify that. That's where Popper comes yeah. in. So you could, you know, you could point out, okay, well, you know, this doesn't work here, sort of. Yeah. Well, I take you back to um, the quotes that I had from Victor Stenger when when he said very clearly that he thought, you know, science worked through empirical means and science gets along perfectly fine without any without any philosophy, without any metaphysics. Uh, and it's, it's there where I take issue uh, with them in particular. Now, I, I'm perfectly happy for there to be other atheists 
who do not share that new atheist kind of um, hardline empiricist philosophy is is dead, as Stephen Hawking says at the beginning of his book. Um, we don't need to do metaphysics or whatever in order to do science. I think that indeed you do inevitably end up doing metaphysics when you do science. Uh, and if you don't think about it, you just end up doing it badly, like people like Alex Rosenberg and, and Stephen Hawking uh, seem to me to do. The thing is, Victor, you know, you stated that, you know, uh, the physical, etc. that's not the only thing. You know, science isn't the only thing. But then, you know, all we did is show us definitions of science. It's like, mm. well, definitions of science isn't contradicting saying that science is the, the only thing. You know, that, that also seems to be a bit of a straw man there. It seems to be a slight of hand going on. No, I don't. I don't think so, because he also contrasted science with faith. You know, science is believing things with evidence. Faith, on the other hand, is, believe, is believing things without evidence. Uh, not only is science defined as believing things with evidence, but it's also defined as not, need, not need getting along without any uh, metaphysics. But in the... Um, I suppose there's some wiggle room in what uh, Stenger says there for interpretation, but also putting them alongside uh, the general trying to paint the, the, the general picture that you get for the new atheists and you get Dawkins saying you know, there is this on the one hand on the other hand it's, it's blind faith or it's evidence and that's, that's science A.C. Grayling saying you know, faith is, by definition is not believing with, with empirical evidence and being sensible is believing with empirical evidence and Peter Atkins saying science is the only way to know um, Alex Rosenberg saying it's the only way to know. Um, it, the problem here is that, again, you're giving the false dichotomy that there's only faith and there's only science. And I've explained you know, that we do some yeah. modern scientists today acknowledge the rationalisation part. Mm. You know, there's a third field. Right. So by saying that you know, science isn't the only thing, mm. it doesn't mean that it automatically accepts faith because there's a third field there. And that would then you know, be incorporated in evidentialism again. So... Oh, right. OK, well, I think that's a, that's a different point. I think we can perhaps then agree that the, the new atheists are being naive in setting up this dichotomy between faith and science, exclusive dichotomy as they set it up. Um, but it was, it's me who's saying that science is a great way to know certain things about certain types of reality, but it, it, it's ineluctably bound up with... Philosophy. You have to have a philosophy of science. You have to do some metaphysics. Um, and uh, whatever else that philosophy of science includes, back to a point I made earlier, it's going to include something like trust in the basic, basic principles of logic and so on, um, which you don't know through empirical means, but you know through rational intuition. Um, and that's the point that I'm making. Um, yeah. There's a problem with faith, because of course, it has, you know, there are multiple definitions with our words, and they're mm. ambiguous. You know, faith is uh, synonymous sometimes with trust, mm. and however, it's also, you know, defined as a strong belief in doctrines of religion based on spiritual conviction yeah. rather than proof. I've also heard, you know, uh, living by faith, not by sight. Um, yeah. You know, so, and the, the new atheists tend to, um, to, to do a marvellous job of trying to confuse the picture here in order to portray religious faith as necessarily a matter of blind faith. Remember that last one I said, uh, we live by faith, not by sight. Yeah. 2 Corinthians 5, 7. Yeah. Hebrews 11, 1, 2. Yeah. Faith is confidence in what we have hoped for and assurance about what we do not see. Yeah. This is what the ancients were commended for. Yeah. 1 Peter 1, 7. 
these have come so that your faith of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may be proved genuine and may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. Mm -hmm. So Jesus Christ is not revealed prior and you believe. No, 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 you see, that... No, this, this is, I'm afraid you're following exactly the kind of new atheist misreadings of those scriptures um, that, that they have done such a good job of putting about. Um, so I'd have, to, I'd have to, to take you into some detail into the context and the language uh, in the Greek of those passages. Um, but um, people like Sam Harris and A.C. Groening, when they point to um, the Hebrews passage or point to... Um, the, the story of doubting Thomas in John's Gospel or whatever, um, completely uh, m misread those passages to make them say the opposite of what they actually say in the context and the language uh, of the original. Well, I'd like, you know, because this is quite, you know, a single statement, this is uh, even what we want to mm. Now, faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. This is what the ancients recommended um, do I have? Yeah. If I can just briefly, um, perhaps uh, if you gave me a little, a few minutes to look up a PowerPoint that I hope I have on my uh, data stick here. If someone else could uh, ask me an interim question, and then we'll come back to that issue whilst I pull up some notes, if I may, just to specifically. Uh, Interim questions. Interim questions. No interim questions. You building on new questions? Are you building on new questions? Go on. You ask one. <laughs> you want me to ask you a question? Yeah. <coughs> okay. Um, Dominic, um, you in your presentation you did um, um, you spend a lot of time using uh, the arguments of Dawkins as mm. um, the, well, the the foil or foil, yeah. yes. However, um, many uh, non-atheists have uh, described even distanced themselves from him. Mm. Um, how do you react to that? Would you still consider his arguments representative of uh, one atheistic viewpoint? Oh, that's an interesting question. Um, certainly, plenty of atheists uh, get very annoyed with Richard Dawkins. Um, Richard Dawkins is representative of neo atheism. Um, he is not representative of atheism. Um, I think it's a bit like um, picking on religion by picking on a fundamentalist theologian um, but uh, in the contemporary context it needs to be done because the new atheists are the one whose who's, uh, views are most kind of out there most vocally within the media and the, the bookshelves of Waterstones uh, and so on um, I wonder if it might be in here in here. So, no, I mean, uh, plenty of atheists tear their hair out of the sort of thing that Richard Dawkins says, and I, I by no means wish to um, paint all atheists with the same brush. 
as well. That's why I specifically started off um, by defining the the new atheists. Uh, this is typical, isn't it? I'm not going to have the slide with me that I that I want. Oh, did you, was it a PowerPoint? That was the question there. Ah, uh, oh, no. Let's see. Let's see, what I can remember off the top of my head. No, that's not going to be any use to me. Um, so, for example, they take the, the story of doubting Thomas and say, yeah, look, Thomas wasn't there on one occasion when Jesus turns up for a resurrection appearance. And um, then he's there another time when Jesus turns up and Jesus berates Thomas. And he says, uh, you know, uh, you believe because you've seen, um, you know, how much better for those who believe without seeing. Blessed are those who, who see without seeing. Um, so there you go. Um, Jesus is against evidence-based belief, and it's all about exercising belief in the absence of evidence. That's what religious faith is meant to be. Completely ignoring, for example, the fact that the writer of John's Gospel, just a few verses later, explicitly tells his audience why he has included all of the stories in the Gospel that he has just recounted to them, i.e., so that you might have faith, i.e., I have given you all of this testimony as evidence upon which you can base your belief. Now, it would be a very uncharitable reading of an author to say that, on the one hand, he is giving these stories as evidence that people can base belief on, and that the whole point of one of the stories that he tells is that you should have belief without having any evidence. Indeed, Thomas himself wasn't in a position of lacking evidence. He was in a position when, where ten of his best mates that he'd known for at least three years had all given them their eyewitness testimony that they had just seen Jesus. And he said, basically, well, that's all right for you, but I'm not going to believe unless I get a personal encounter myself. I demand my own personal encounter. Um, well, you know, I believe in the resurrection. I think I believe in the resurrection on the basis of various bits of evidence and testimony. And what is the best explanation of it? You might think it's insufficient testimony. Um, but, it, but I am uh, clearly not exercising a deliberately blind trust. I'm exercising what I think is trust on the basis of of evidence that is, uh, I would say, no worse than the evidence that Thomas had available to him. Indeed, probably the evidence he had available to him, since he's on top of the ground, interviewed the eyewitnesses himself, can go and look at the tomb and see, you know, etc., etc., is probably better than the evidence that I have for it. Um, so what Jesus uh, berates him for, having actually turned up in order to satisfy this demand from Thomas by coming and saying, Thomas, look, it really is me, touch me, look at the holes in my side, etc. You, you know, I will submit to your evidential requirement, at which point uh, Thomas 
and he famously falls and said, my Lord and my, and my God. Um, so having graciously submitted to this sort of overweening demand upon Thomas's part, Jesus does berate him a little bit by basically saying, look, you already had enough evidence. This, this is getting a bit, bit on top of yourself. Other people are going to believe and they're not going to have a, a direct eyewitness encounter with me. Um, but then John, in the end of his gospel, says, and the reason I've told you these stories is so that you can exercise faith in them on the basis of my, of my testimony. Um, so their faith is being defined as trust on the basis of testimony, not as blind faith. The problem here is that it then raises several other issues with this. You know, do we believe instantly anything that has been written by someone and says that you know, it's been true, etc.? For example, I talked to um, you know, someone else about it. It's a Hebrew... You know, I talked about well, a Jew, I should say. I talked to mm. him about this. You know, it's all about the whole fact that you know so many people saw you know mm. the miracles of God, etc. The Red Sea and all that. And you know, I pointed out facts. I can just go. You know, I saw God in the River Thames. You know, London has a population of eight million. Mm-hmm. Population of eight million. That's why I put all that you know evidence backing me. Also, remember these te- these testaments often written sixty years later or even further, and a lot of them by the authors that not claim who they you know they're not who mm-hmm. they claim to be. And then on top of this, you know, if God was willing, Jesus was willing to show himself to one person, mm-hmm. but he's not willing to show himself to everyone else, mm-hmm. you know, who wasn't around at the time, who never saw Jesus or any of the miracles, people have never experienced any mm-hmm. of this or any of the power wonder, you know, the lows, the, you know, the miracle of the fishing, except none of that, but he expects them to have even more faith. And also then raises the question, why could he not just show himself to those people? Because, you know, isn't he all powerful? Right, so I think I noticed at least three points to address there. Um, one, um, whatever dating you give to the Gospels, uh, the primary uh, evidence for the resurrection appearances and so on come from uh, the creedal uh, passages in Pauline literature, in the letters. Um, which are earlier than the Gospels. And indeed, the primary um, bit of data here is the creed quoted in 1 Corinthians 15, um, which the consensus view within New Testament studies, atheist scholars, not just conservative evangelical guys, you know, um, would be that that data goes back to within um, months of the claims of resurrection itself. I've got your email. Would you be able to give me some of these sources? Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Um, or if you want to follow up those who are listening on the tape or whatever, my um, book, uh, Understanding Jesus, Five Ways to Spiritual Enlightenment, has uh, a chapter on the dating and the authorship of the Gospels and uh, a chapter on the evidence for the resurrection and goes into some of this um, Pauline creedal stuff as well. Um, so actually, um, I think the, the evidence is much better than the New Atheist writers will portray it uh, as being. Um, this is, again, them being out of touch with the contemporary New Testament scholarship uh, scene and unfortunately promulgating that sort of 150 years out of touch kind of view uh, to people in general. Um, as for, well, yes, God's omnipotent and he could presumably you know, make Jesus appear in front of everyone and hold his scarred hands up and say, you know, have a dig, have a root all around in my side where the spear went in, um, whoever you are, uh, to everyone. Uh, clearly he doesn't do that. 
he could do that, uh, at least in terms of power. Why doesn't he do that? Uh, I'm not sure I know. Um, I'm not sure how relevant a point that is, though, because it seems to be an instance where um, you, you say, um, you know, I want some uh, evidence for believing something, uh, and then we set our evidential bar, as it were. And when you set an evidential bar, the question is always, what is the, uh, you know, the, 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 the reasonable place level to set our evidential bar at in this particular instance? Um, and do we allow arguments about, well, there could be more evidence than there is in this case for a certain tra- claim, does the fact that there could be more evidence for a claim undermine the fact that there is evidence for the claim and the debate about where does that evidence that there is point to? Just by saying, okay, there's evidence, but there could be more. Can't let you take the eye off the fact that there is evidence and you have to ask, where does it point? Another question. Do you define God as all-knowing? Uh, yes. So would he know the level of evidence it would be required to make me convert and therefore also provide that amount of evidence and know there would be no issue with, you know, you know I want more evidence, etc.? Or is right. that factor magically? Uh, yes, I think uh, presumably God um, would know um, what evidence um, you would find compelling. Uh, what evidence you would find intriguing but less than compelling and so on. But then we do get into a whole bunch of interesting questions about um, is God primarily about compelling our belief in him? Is he more interested, as the Bible seems to intimate, in eliciting a relationship with him freely from us? Um, might he also know things like, were I to give everybody compelling evidence for certain truth claims, um, okay, that might result in a lot more people believing certain propositions about me, but would that carry through to more people responding in relationship to me? Would people take umbrage at my stepping in so much. Some atheists have said, you know, interesting conversations sometimes when people do sort of, you have the back and forth over, well, how much evidence would you need then? And sometimes atheists sort of say things like, well, you know, I suppose if God were to rearrange all the stars in the heavens, one atheist philosopher famously said, to sort of spell out, you know, I do most certainly exist. Uh, you know, Fred, uh, stop doubting and believe in me. It's like, you know, then surely, you know, I would believe. Or actually, on second thoughts, I might think I was going mad, he said. Um, uh, So would I start, rather than believing that evidence, would I actually start doubting the reliability of my senses? Um, But anyway, the odds of the stars in the sky rearranging at random to spell out such a sentence are minute compared to the fine-tuning odds of the universe. Um, (laughs) So... um, (laughs) Coming back to, you know... Lighting out the stars, etc. Mm. Um, I'm just trying to think how to word this now. The fact is, you know, typically speaking from you know the study of psychopathology, 
mad people don't often, you know, don't always question whether they're mad or not. Mm. Surely you'd mm. be able to understand also as an all-powerful, all-knowing God, how to give that evidence without making you think that you're mad. Yeah. You know, you're, yeah. Just, you're just running God into a tighter and tighter box. That's all I really have to do. I have to keep using your definitions against you. And to the point that you say your God's power and your God's intellect mm. is restricted by my, you know, conscious state. At which point it ceases to be all-powerful and all-knowing. So... Uh, well, no, not as in with, for example, the free will uh, defence, because you come up against uh, even God not being able to do logically impossible things. Um, it's a bit like asking, you know, can I kick a football? Well, yes, I can, but can I kick a football? No, I can't because I haven't actually got one. Um, so in what circumstances um, certain things are, are possible or not, in order to achieve what ends, in what manner... Um, and again, back to the, the point I think about um, belief versus relationship. Um, I, I think what you're, you're kind of raising is uh, an issue sometimes known as the, the, the hiddenness of God argument, um, which is very much an argument from a sort of prior assumption of how much evidence there should be were there to be a God, plus the assumption that there is not sufficient evidence to meet that criteria in order to get to the conclusion that there, there is no God. And I think both, both premises are, are um, fraught with difficulty. Problem for you, you guys are now out of the job for the problem of divine hiddenness. If you want to remain hidden, you are, indirect, you are directly fighting God's will by trying to prove he exists to us. Don't you realise that very fact? Your very existence here tonight mm. argues against divine hiddenness. No, it's, the... the the argument from divine hiddenness is an, is an atheistic argument, um, particularly from an atheist philosopher called, Sh- called Schallenberg, um, who says, um, if there were a God, I make the following assumptions about how much evidence there would be uh, available of his existence, X. Second premise, there is not such a level, there's less than such a level of evidence Therefore, there's no God. So it's God just arbitrarily picks a random point that's going to allow some people to be tortured for eternity and some people to be saved. No, 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 there'd be a here and now clause within that, obviously, as well. Um, And perhaps the assumption that, indeed, God hasn't given that amount of evidence. Maybe you haven't seen that amount of evidence yet, but it's there to see. Should God push that upon you so that you can't but see it, that then gets into the, the whole debate about which is more important, belief that or belief in. How does God lead people to relationship? Um, the way in which even, you know, you can look in the, the, the Bible gives examples where, you know, the, the people of Israel have just come out of bondage in, in Egypt and all these wonderful miracles have worked and it doesn't take very much before they're grumbling and not believing in God and going off worshipping golden calves uh, and so on. And it's not... Uh, in that case, a lack of evidence that there is a God, but it's a, a, it's a lack of well-formed relationship 
with God. Uh, there's uh, 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 an interlocking between rationality and uh, human morality as well. Um, what we want to know or not know, as well as uh, what we can know and not know under certain circumstances and so on. But as far as the, the question, you know, is, is God being unfair um, towards people? Is he going to sort of randomly condemn certain people for not believing that he exists? Well, absolutely not. Absolutely not. Because the criterion is clearly, biblically speaking, whether or not you respond to the knowledge that you do have of God. Whether or not you you deliberately and consciously reject God's offer of relationship with you. Not do you happen to be ignorant about there being a God or ignorant about the revelation of, of Jesus or, or what have you. My issue here is that to get into a relationship with someone, in the back in reality, you need to know that they exist. But mm. you know, without them knowing existence, the relationship is a reciprocal, you know, yeah. traditional tie, etc. Without knowing they exist, you can't have that. However, knowing that they do exist mm. does not instantly put you in, you know, oh, you're going to love them forever. Yeah. Thing. You know, people exactly. Take for example the case of the pharaoh. You know, mm. the pharaoh had multiple cases mm. where you know mm. he he was practically proved, you know, that God proved him. He existed mm. and he was angry. So much yeah. that the Pharaoh actually started giving away the um, slaves, but yeah. he kept hardening his heart so he keep punching him like a kid on the ground. Um, but, you know, the fact is, that there, the Pharaoh shows that, okay, you know, he, the first few, um, you know, played, etc., he knew the God existed. However, he stood his ground. He did not accept that relationship. Mm. Therefore, the argument that God stays hidden because, you know, if he stays hidden, he can have a relationship that he wouldn't have if he revealed himself. It just seems, again, it seems to be running back to the actual religious definition of faith first. You know, you need to take on this faith in order to gain that relationship. And then he'll reveal himself and then you'll be rewarded for, you know, having this view that was unjustified or not justified to a great enough extent for that individual necessarily. Mm. Which goes back to, you know, which arbitrary point. Mm. Right? The very existence of, you know... Not Satanists in the sense that people actually just believe in Satan and, and reject you know, the Christian God, but they're actually, you know, Satanists mm. that do accept the Christian God. However, they, you know, they absolutely despise him. Mm. You know, their very existence argues against the argument that you know just showing yourself instantly puts you in a relationship. Well, no, I didn't say revealing yourself puts yourself instantly into positive relationship with a person, and then, you know, I quoted a biblical example where, just like the example you quote, where revealing that there is a God did not result in positive relationship, but indeed resulted in, in negative relationship. Um, so there's not an automatic uh, line-up between, um, yes, there's enough evidence that there's a God, and having a positive relationship with God. Um, now, the, the main thing from a biblical sort of God's eye point of view is a positive relationship with God, um, not merely the knowledge that there's a God, which can result in negative relationship with God. Um, yes, you have to know that, that there's a God before you can have a positive relationship with him, but also vice versa. Um, so I think it's uh, it's a complex matter uh, 
Um, and I think that complex matter shouldn't distract us from the question of what is the evidence that we can see and where does it point and how, am I, how would I react, how am I reacting to God if I do think there is such a being and the question that we all have to ask ourselves about the, the interrelationship between those things in our psychology um, of, you know, actually... You know, am I like, like Thomas Nagel says, you know, I don't want there to be a God. It's not just that I, I hope that I'm right as a philosopher and I don't want to be proven wrong. It's like I don't want to live in a world like that. Um, or would we respond positively? Um, are we um, seeking, you know, Jesus' phrase, um, seek and you will find. Um, Pascal's phrase, that there is enough evidence for those who want to have grounds, rational grounds for belief in a God that they would respond to. But no, clearly God doesn't go around just sort of Bible bashing everybody on the head with ineluctable proof that he exists. Which would result in what? Well, it would result in a lot of people believing that he exists. But... That doesn't get you to, from the biblical point of view, the, the main thing. Um, and perhaps God, in his interaction, uh, you know, he's, he's not just a sort of cosmic algorithm working on, a, on an algorithmic basis with, 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 with reality, but a person wanting to interact on a personal level with individuals um, and, and worrying individuals. Um, and I think I have to honestly say as a Christian, yes, perhaps there's an, an element of, of, of mystery and uncertainty from, from my side on, on, on to why that? Why, why do we have more evidence of God's existence now in the 21st century than we ever have before? You know, is that unfair to all those people in the 18th century who didn't know about Big Bang cosmology? Um, but I can certainly point to the bits in the Bible that say, well, God's interested in relationship with everybody. He wants everybody to be saved. And people are not, you know, damned for a excusable ignorance about God. The only thing, um, the only instance where people don't get relationship with God eternally is if they deliberately and consciously don't want relationship with, with God eternally. Um, and presumably, from, from my point of view, say if people don't um, have an opportunity in this life to find out about those possibilities, they certainly will in the next. Um, because we don't have a, a horizon limited to, um, to hit this world as the only opportunity for knowing things. Um, and I think that's about the, the most that can be uh, said with any theological... Verity, from my perspective. Mm. You know, the argument that, you know, again, do you, whether some people want to live in a world where they'd much rather you know, be ignorant of God, etc. Yeah, maybe. Huh? Maybe. But, you know, wouldn't it be fairer for God to reveal himself, and if those people, you know, then, like, oh, I really wish he didn't exist, etc., couldn't he then, you know, just clear their minds so that they walk away, nothing happens? Uh, well, maybe, but I don't think he's done that. But then if he did, we wouldn't know, would we, by definition? Mm -hmm. So, well, <laughs> believer, so, you know, that's... 
Right. That younger me would have wanted that evidence, mm. but found none of it. So. But then that brings up the issue of just because you didn't find something in the past, does that necessarily mean you can't find something in, in, in the future? Why do you think I'm here? <laughs> exactly. So, you know, um, so on the one hand, you, you, you want me to try and, and produce evidence. I, I want to be challenged. Evidence. Platonistic sort of feel. I want to be challenged on, you know, what I think, etc. Mm. You know, I'm, I'm very active on YouTube. And the more videos I watch are not the atheist videos. I will go and find out the other videos, and because that's what I want. Mm. I want to be challenged. I want to question myself. Because mm. from questioning, I can also rationalise better. I can formulate better arguments mm. and become more confident in my speech. Mm. So, yeah. Good. Well, I think that's a good thing. Um, you know, uh, as a philosopher, I'm I'm all for um, self-taught intellectual inquiry. <laughs> yeah. Self-taught. Uh, yeah. I, I, there was a, a guy behind you who wants to uh, to raise a question. Um, Sorry, I'm sorry, didn't I? Um, if you can't do it, like, would you mind uh, sharing your testimony in terms of like um, what your faith has gone, whether it's like wavered a bit, if you're Yeah, sure. I mean, I'm one of those guys who grew up in uh, a family that was uh, Christian from when I was the year dot. You know, um, it was certainly the case that um, uh, it was quite a sort of intellectual kind of family. Both my parents were, were teachers in the sciences. Um, so as I grew up, uh, I kind of became used to discussing the sermon, um, talking about documentaries on TV, thinking about sort of faith science issues, started reading the occasional sort of C.S. Lewis or William Lane Craig by the time I was up to sixth form or what have you. Um, for me, I think um, faith journey was always a process of as you come to a more mature understanding of what is actually being claimed here, and you get to that point of thinking, do I believe this because I believe it, or just because you know I've been enculturated into it, my family believes it, etc. Um, I remember the point where, when I was old enough to be, um, be left on my own, my parents very clearly said to me, um, you know, we're Christians and we think that's true and we, we want to go to church and things, but, but you don't have to. Um, you know, um, you have to make your own decision over these kind of things. And if you want to go somewhere else, that's fine. If you want to stay at home, that's fine. Um, but you have to come to your own uh, opinion on the matter. Um, so I think I had that sort of freedom of inquiry um, granted to me in a sort of secure kind of way and which is which is a great thing and as I matured in my understanding of what's being said and so on I, I did come to those kind of do I really believe this you know oh gosh this is what the ramifications are this is what's really being claimed you get new perspectives on things as you as you grow older um, it's just that whenever I went through that questioning process um, it always turned out that I came back with the answer that yes I, I did think it was real and I did, th did think it was true and I did think I was buying into it uh, for myself um, so um, I never had a, a, a drift away uh, from the faith that I was raised in um, but I think not from a sort of non-questioning kind of just getting swept along kind of stance Certainly, by the time I was then at university and meeting philosophy for the first time and having atheist and agnostic philosophy professors and so on, 
Um, that's quite interesting. Um, but you do tend to notice that a lot of the guys that you're reading in class are theists, whether or not the lecturer is, and that some of the lecturers are, and that at least this is a, an area of academic debate within the university where you're actually encouraged to think and disagree and argue on the table or on a sort of even playing field about those kind of issues. It's not sort of buried under the carpet or sort of dust is verboten, you can't mention that. Don't think about those things in the lab or, what, or what, whatever. Um, so I liked that sort of academic freedom aspect of it. And certainly I go through um, times where I, I very much empathise with, um, you know, C.S. Lewis said, you know, um, now that I'm a Christian, um, I do have moods in which the whole thing seems terribly improbable. Um, but he said, when I was an atheist, I also had moods in which that Christianity thing looked terribly probable. Um, you know, and moods come and go, and you try and um, think, is my mood being informed by what I'm actually thinking? And sometimes you wrestle with complex, difficult philosophical questions, and you, you have to wrestle with complex philosophical questions, and there's nothing, nothing for it but to, to, to wrestle through it and try and follow the, follow the argument where it leads, as Anthony Flew famously said. Um, I've always come up on the side of still thinking that Christianity is the most reasonable position. Um, don't go looking in life for the worldview or the religion or the philosophy or whatever that has no intellectual problems or issues or sort of gaps within its understanding of reality because we're poor, benighted, finite creatures and we don't understand everything comprehensively. But do go looking for the view that seems to make the best overall sense of everything you think you know from all the sources you think you know stuff from. Um, and I can only say that my testimony is that for me that's, that's theism and indeed Christianity. Um, Thank you.